0: Job, you can open to Job chapter 8, <clears throat> I love this time of year, isn't it a great time of year with the advent candle and we're all anticipating things, it's the anticipation building, all we need is some snow, All right. I mean we love 53 degree weather, but it would be really nice to have some snow. So have you ever sat back and thought, and perhaps you have, sat back and thought about how gruesome some of the old fairy tales are? They're actually... It's quite astounding when you start really thinking about it. Hansel and Gretel, a charming story of an old woman who wants to eat some children. (laughs) Little Red Riding Hood, an enchanting tale of a wolf who consumes a grandmother and tries to do the same to this innocent little girl. Rapunzel, a delightful tale of long-term kidnapping. Cinderella? A lovely tale of such vanity and greed that these sisters are willing to cut off the ends of their feet in order to get it. And that bled over into some of our childhood Disney movies as well, excuse the pun. Like 101 Dalmatians. Have you ever thought about this? Basically, a story of a woman named Corella Deville who wants to make a fur coat. Out of little sweet little puppies. And when you think of it, it's it's actually something that you shouldn't show your kids. (laughs) But I don't know about you, maybe I'm a little thick, maybe I'm a little slow, but I never actually got the play on words that Disney was doing in her name. I never got that until like I was in my 30s or something and watching it with our kids. Finally, it, it dawned on me. I mean, Curla DeVille is, is, is cruel devil. They were actually telling us something about her character in her name, hidden there. Today we come to Job's second comforter, or so-called comforter, Bildad. Now his name doesn't tell us anything about his character, but his words sure do. He counsels Job in chapters 8, which we're going to read today, in chapters 18, and then again in chapter 25. And they get progressively shorter as he counsels Job. He could best be described maybe as the scholar of the group, and he approaches Job's suffering in kind of a cerebral manner. Maybe even cold, as we'll see. To the point that some commentators actually call him Bildad the, the Brutal. Bildad the Brutal. Look with me at chapter 8 in the book of Job as we look at Job's second counselor and how he speaks to Job, how he comforts, how he counsels Job. God's word starts there in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression." If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet a flower and not, and not cut down, they wither before other plants. Such are the paths of all who forget God and hope Of the godless that perish. His confidence is severed. And his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house. But it does not stand. He lays hold of it. But it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun. And his shoots spread over the garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon the house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place. Then it will deny him saying. I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Oh, Father God, I ask you again to help us understand this. Send your Spirit. And Spirit, we implore you as we continue to work through this wonderful uh, holy writ of, of Job that you will illuminate the words, help us in our understanding. Only you can help us, Lord. Otherwise, these are just black ink on white page. We trust in you and we give ourselves to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Bildad is easily the coldest and most emotionally distant of the three friends that come to counsel and comfort Job. In what Elphaz has said, in what Zophar will say as we look at it, we hear glimpses of empathy, we see parts of sympathy, but not with Bildad. Almost to the letter Bildad is this cold distant cerebral counselor as an example in back in chapter 7 of Job you can see and you can even look you can even look at the title heading for chapter 7 it says my life has no hope that's the general theme of chapter 7 that's what Job is pouring out to his counselors here i have no hope and look at verse 2 in chapter 8 Look at how Bildad begins to answer him. Job has just laid this hopeless situation out before him. And he says, How long will you say these things? With the words of my mouth, you're great wind. He's saying, Oh, come on, Job. I mean the first words out of his mouth, Ah, oh, come on, Job. That's how he starts. But as last week, as I stated, part of what makes the book of Job so confusing is you have these comforters and they say a lot of bad stuff, as we'll see, but they also say some good stuff. For example, in Bildad's third speech in chapter 25, he says this, How then can a man be right before God? Good question. How then can a man be right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, the son of man who is a worm. I mean, he's certainly using some strong language here, but he is basically explaining to Job that he's a sinner. That's basically what Bildad is saying, using strong language for sure. But he's rooting his argument in the truth. Now he might come to some, he's coming to wrong conclusions, as all of Job's counselors do. But the root of it is true. Job, you're a sinner. Now, as we have seen with Eliphaz, as we will see with Zophar, Bildad also has that bad theology, that this if-then theology, right? You are a sinner, thus God must be punishing you for sin, right? We've covered that. And we'll cover that again and again as we look at Job's comforters. They come to wrong conclusions, but he's saying something true here. Job, you are a sinner. People everywhere are born sinful from birth. We can't avoid that truth, he's saying. And that's that's true. That's just true. A study done by German scientist Jan Suman proved that humans being, human beings simply can't walk in a straight line. Suman blindfolded his subjects and asked them to walk for a distance in a straight line. Without exception, people couldn't do it, no matter how long or how short, until they were shown their path. They wouldn't even admit that they didn't walk a straight line until they were shown their path. Suman concluded, there's just something about our inner orientation that causes us to walk in a crooked way. It's a great definition of original sin. There's just something in our inner orientation that causes us to walk in a crooked way. And that's what Bildad is saying. And that's what the Bible supports. Yet we, we all, from birth, walk in a crooked way. Like sheep that have gone astray, Bi- the Bible says. Or all have turned aside, as the Bible says. Yet, just like those people in the experiment, when we are blindfolded and we are walking, we think we're walking straight. That's what we all think. We all think we're walking straight. Our natural proclivity is to think That we are not sinners. Our natural orientation that we are born with is also that we deny this sinful part of us. That we think we're basically good. In other words, we're blind to our own crookedness. But as Bildad reminds Job and us, how can he who is born of woman be pure? That's what he's reminding Job. And the answer is, we can't. We can't. The only reason any of us in this room have any objectivity to say that we are a sinner is because of God's immeasurable grace in our life. The only reason that you're sitting here and can admit that you walk crookedly is because of God's grace. The Holy Spirit coming and taking that blindfold off so that you can look back at your path and go, oh my goodness, I thought I was walking straight, but I wasn't. One of the most illuminating verses about this is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14. I remember reading this maybe 25 or 30 years ago and it, it just dawned on me. This was one of the verses the Lord used to actually... Help me understand original sin. Paul there writes, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Brothers and sisters, the only reason you're able to see your crooked way is because the Holy Spirit has taken the blindfold off the only reason you can say that so that we can see our need for a savior outside of ourselves so that we can reach out for the forgiveness found in Christ because we see how we have turned aside so that we can repent of our sins that's where it leads and that's, that's another aspect of, of what Bildad says that's really good. He encourages Job to repent. Did you see it in verses 5 and 6? Look down with me. He says, If you will see God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Bildad is encouraging Job because... You're sinful. Repent. This is a good thing. J- Bildad is saying. Evangelist Curtis Hudson said, "There's no doubt that all men from Adam, that all men from Adam, uh, have to repent in order to have a right relationship with God." The importance of repentance is demonstrated by the fact that men of every biblical age preached it, and Bildad is preaching that. In one of the earliest books, at least in the setting, that has ever been written. Repentance is the foundation of the Christian life. I mean, that's what Jesus came, his first words in Mark. Do you remember? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. His first words. When asked uh, by the people that were cut in the heart at Pentecost what they should do, what was Peter's first words? Repent and be baptized. When Paul was preaching to the Athenians in the Areopagus, and he, he told them that now men, uh, God is declaring to all men everywhere to repent. It's the first s- step. Once the blindfold is taken off, once you look back and see your wandering way. In order to call yourself a Christian, you must not only have the blindfold taken off, but you also have to repent. Brothers and sisters, there, there are people that, that might say, I, I'm a sinner, but have never repented. There are people that can see perhaps their, their crooked way, but they've never repented. They're not saved. Repentance is the first step in salvation. Repentance is not... Also, not only the the first step in justification, in salvation, but it's also the continual step, the continual life, if if I will, of you as a Christian. That has to be part of your daily life. If you ever want to grow deep as a Christian, if you ever want to mature as a Christian, if you ever want to, to have the burdens taken off, if you will, through life as a Christian, you have to have that, that discipline in your life of repentance. We call it around here a lifestyle of repentance. Speaking on the evil of the Catholic practice of indulgences and the necessity of personal repentance, the reformer John Wycliffe wrote this, Covet not your neighbor, neighbor's goods, despise him not, slander him not, scorn him not, backbite him not. But many think if they give a penny to a pardoner, they shall be forgiven. But I say to you for certain, though you have priests and friars to sing for you, though each day you hear many masses and found chantries and colleges and go on pilgrimages all your life, Give all your goods to partners. All this shall not bring your soul to heaven. And he goes on to talk about how the the centrality of a personal repentance to God. Wycliffe is saying, you can't do anything to be be forgiven. You can't do anything to be forgiven. Bildad nails it. Seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy. That's, that's just basic to the Christian life. Bildad should have stopped there. But he didn't. And he taints his good counsel with bad. If you repent, he says, he goes on to say, God will restore your life. He will give you everything back. The message translates verse six like this. If you're, if you're as innocent and upright as you say, it's not too late. He'll come running. God will set everything right again and reestablish your fortunes. In other words, he's saying, repent and God will give it all back to you. And in saying that, Bildad kind of outs part of our hearts, doesn't he? Because it's there in each and every one of our hearts. We all have bad theology mixed with good. We all, in some corner of our mind, in some recess of our hearts, think, if I repent, God will make everything perfect in my life. He, like us, Sees it as cause and effect. As a matter of fact, in verse 11 of chapter 8, Bildad is giving examples of that, and he says, Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? You see, Bildad is saying, It's cause and effect. You repent, God owes you. I do this, you do this, you do that, God. All right? It's again, this, this part of our hearts that is quid pro quo. I do this, you do that. That's the deal, right? That's certainly the foundation of the Catholic Church and what they teach of penance. That's what they're ingraining into billions of people. God owes you. And that's what Bildad is saying is bad theology. However, let's not throw rocks in a glass house. That's part of our thought process as well. The Bible tells that if you repent and plead for mercy, that God is just and faithful and will forgive your sins. That is the promise. He will forgive you. But it doesn't promise. He never promises to make your life easy. He never promises, I'll give you everything back. He never promises, you do that, I'll do this. But in each of us, there is a little quid pro quo theology. I do this, God. Now you do what you're on the line to do. The idea that God owes me. That if I serve... And I sacrifice, then you have to hold up your end of the deal. That's certainly how we treat each other, isn't it? I mean, go, go along with this thought experiment with me. How would you feel if your neighbor borrowed a tool of yours every weekend? Came over, said, hey, listen, Bob, um, can I just borrow this tool next weekend, this, this tool, and this tool? And that goes on for a year, every weekend. Okay, you know, around month six, seven, it's a little annoying, but you're willing to go along with it. But then there's one day where you don't have the tool you need. And you go over and ask him, and you see it hanging there. And you say, can I borrow that weed eater? And he goes, no. What's going on? Hey, listen, I did this. You're on the hook to do that. That's just natural in the human heart. And we transfer that to God. And we go, listen, I I do this. You're on the hook to give me Whatever is in your heart. Whatever idols are are ruminating around in there. That's the way our heart is tacitly wired towards God. And this is one of the heart issues. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the heart issues. That for 38 chapters, Job is harping on. The book of Job. This quid pro quo type Of God that we have created. In fact. It's the foundation of of the whole book of Job. If you just recall briefly. Chapters 1 and 2. That's what Satan is setting up here. Isn't it? God says. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan goes. Well the only reason he loves you. Is because of all the benefits you've given him. You take those away. And he'll curse you. He'll walk away. And that's the trajectory of Job. It's taken away in the struggle with this quid pro quo. Listen, I lived a blameless life. I didn't have sex before marriage. I served in the church. Now it's your turn. And God will have none of it. And that's what the the book of Job is laying out for us. Would Job continue to love and serve and sacrifice God without the quid, without the comforts, without the benefits? What about you today? Is there some quid pro quo in your heart where God is concerned? Is that how you relate to God at least on some level? if God doesn't come through the way you want, will you give God the stiff arm? Will you serve in the church a little less? Will you open your Bible a little less often? Will you be more likely not to show up for Sunday school? Will you find it A little too inconvenient to be discipled or to disciple. Will you find yourself in prayer less? Will you find yourself in worship less? Will you find other things more pressing on Sunday? Will you find the things of the world growing in importance to you? We find the things of God a little less interesting. If those things start to happen, there might be a dotted line back into your heart of this quid pro quo type of theology. But the real ugly part of Bildad is his harshness. He says some good things, he says some bad things. But really the ugliness of, of Bildad is, is kind of who he is. Bildad is so cerebral in his approach to suffering that it leads to harshness. It leads to like an empathy-less feeling towards those who are, that are suffering. Look again at, at verse 2 and imagine again that a good friend of yours, not just a, an acquaintance, but a good friend of yours has just laid out their pain and job says how long will you say these things I, I can't I, I don't have a whole lot of time for you can you say can you speed up can you speed up what you you're suffering because I don't have a whole lot of time or a few verses later in verse four did you pick up on this this is probably this is horrific after after losing his ten children, do you, you see the counsel that he's giving him? Your children got what they deserved. Imagine saying that to somebody. You lose a child. You, your friend loses a child, and your first counsel as well. They got what they deserved. The message helps us understand the harshness of Bildad's words in chapter eighteen. Verses 2 through 4, after Job pleads for sympathy. In Job 17, he's pleading for sympathy. Give me, help, just help me. Have you ever had a person say that? Just help me, say something comforting. And here's what Bildad says. How monotonous these words games are getting. Get serious. We need to get down to business. Why do you treat your friends as slow-witted animals? He's he's saying, listen, listen to my counsel and let's get on with this. You look down on us as if we don't know anything. Why are you working yourself up like this? Do you want the world to redesign to suit you? Should reality be suspended to accommodate you? How cold that is to say. Bill, that is so cerebral that he is harsh. He's not moved by, by Job's plight. In fact, he's frustrated by it. Why aren't you listening to me? If you just listen to what I say, we can get on with this. Richard Needham wrote, The man who is brutally honest enjoys the brutality quite as much as the honesty, perhaps even more. Could that be said of some of us? When people are suffering for extended periods of time, extended periods of time, do you get frustrated? Do you think of versions of just snap out of it? How much room do you have in your heart for those that are suffering? How much empathy? How much grace? Or do you approach things kind of the way C.S. Lewis began to approach suffering? C.S. Lewis wrote two books on suffering one is The Problem of Pain. It's an analytic approach to suffering. He wrote it when he was younger. And it helps, he helps to explain the interaction between God's sovereignty and his goodness and human wickedness and suffering. At one point he writes this, If I knew any way of escape, I would crawl through the sewers to find it. But what is the good of telling you about my feelings? You know them already. They're the same as yours. I'm not arguing that pain is not painful. Pain hurts. Pain hurts. That is what the word means. To prove it palatable is beyond my design. He sounds a lot like Bill Dad. But then something happened to C.S. Lewis. After he wrote that book, a few years later, his wife contracted bone cancer. And he watched her basically wither away and die over a four-year period. Afterwards, he journaled his grief, and it became a book known as A Grief Observed. And that book is a lot different than The Problem of Pain. A Grief Observed reads a lot like Job. He admits that there are no easy answers to suffering, that you can't fall back on easy platitudes and right, righteous accusations about hidden sin. In fact, it was so raw and emotional and honest that he was ashamed to publish it under his own name. So he published it under his pen name, N.W. Clark. He only put his name on it, ironically, after a number of well-meaning friends took that book And gave it to him to help him in his own grief. (laughs) But it took a tragedy. It took suffering. To change the cerebral approach. To the heart approach. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever entertained the thought. That God has put some suffering in your life. To do just that. Not just to sanctify you. He's going to do that. But so that you can help somebody else. Because that's a big category in scripture. And we read about it specifically in 2 Corinthians 1 When Paul writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received. That's one of the divine reasons for suffering. When we suffer, we tend to curl in. Right? But God is saying no. Yes, it's for you. But it's just as much for others. He does it to soften our hearts towards others who suffer. Because I'm guessing that there are people like me in this room that can just kind of walk a right by people. He puts suffering in our life so that we can go from the problem of pain to grief observed. And when you gaze at the cross, you actually see that at work. His suffering was not brought on by any of his own sin, just like Job, this is a kind of a way we can see Christ in Job. His suffering was not brought on by any of his own sin, but his suffering that he went through was for us, was for others. Perhaps there are a few bill among us today, and I hope That as you read Job and you see Christ in Job, that you will go from the analytical problem with pain and have your heart changed, so that you can observe grief in others. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word again. And Holy Spirit, we are just in your debt for bringing it to life. And we ask you, Lord, that as we have heard about the hardness of heart of Bildad towards suffering, that you have softened our heart towards others that suffer. In Jesus' name, amen.